0: So if you have your Bibles, please do open them up to Exodus chapter 20. We are working our way through the Ten Commandments, and we're up to the Second Commandment, that you'll find in verses 4 through to 6 of that passage. But before we come to uh, this text, let's pray. Lord God, how great is your glory, uh, how wondrous you are, how amazing you are. And Lord, as sinful men and women, we cannot fathom it. The, the darkness hides thee, and the eye of sinful man cannot see the world. And Lord, we pray that uh, as we come to your word, your word in which you reveal yourself to us, that we will see by the power of your spirit the depths of our sin and the heights of your love. in Jesus' name. If you were uh, going to go and meet... The king—I was going to say queen, but it's king now. Um, how would you? How would you do that? Uh, you can't. You can't just walk in and engage with the king however you like. There's protocol. There's things that you have to do. You have to um, stand until the king sits, and after he sits, you can sit. You have to address him using the right words. Um, there's... You have to arrive before he does, you have to leave after he does. There's a whole series of things that are required when you engage with the king. And I want you to, us to see as we work our way through this second commandment tonight, that in this commandment God is showing us how we are to engage with him in a particular way. If we have to be careful and be proper in the way that we engage with the king of an country, how much more so, the God of all heavens. You see, uh, the the command, the second commandment, um, you can see it there in verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. What is this commandment actually talking about? This is we're going to spend most of our time on, just going over it and digging into the depths of what it is that this commandment really means. doesn't mean, for instance, that we should not have any uh, art. You shall not make, he says there, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shouldn't make any statues at all, full stop. Is that what it means? Well, we know that it can't mean that. Because, just a few uh, verses later on, God's going to command the Israelites to make a tabernacle. And what's the tabernacle going to be filled with? It's going to be filled with images of pomegranates, and of uh, trees, and leaves, and even angels themselves. It's the second part of this commandment that really points us in the right direction. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. The issue here is worshipping images, worshipping created images. Now, obviously this outlaws, this prohibits the worship of any false idol, doesn't it? But I want to argue that this primarily is actually about the worship of the true God. God's already commanded in the first commandment that we should only have one God, we should worship the true God. this commandment is about how we are to worship Him. Are we to worship Him like the other nations, like the other religions, with statues and images? And that is what this commandment is getting at. You see, the the Israelites in their day were surrounded by image worshippers. Every other nation approached their gods through statues. You can imagine that they had great temptation to join in. If everyone else has a very tangible focal point for their worship... And you don't. Imagine how your worship might feel deficient. If you've got Dagon, the god of the Philistines over there, and you can see him and he's in their temple and his presence seems to be there because there's a statue of him. Well, then when you go to the tabernacle and there's no image, you might feel that there's something lacking. And this was actually a temptation for the Israelites. We know this because God spoke the Ten Commandments to them directly and then Moses went up on the mountain for about a month and before he'd even come down from the mountain they'd already broken this very commandment. We read in Exodus 32 that uh, the people grew restless while Moses was up on the mountain of Sinai and so Aaron, seeking to quell their restlessness, asks them to give him all their gold. And they give him all the gold and he puts it in the fire and he makes a calf. And what does he say about that calf? If you have your your Bibles there, I'll read it out for you anyway. But Exodus 32 verse 4, this is what Aaron says about the calf. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Is he presenting a false god to worship? Is he presenting Baal? This is Baal? No, he's not saying that. He's saying this is Yahweh. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. In statue form for you to worship. It's not something that just happens once either. Jeroboam, when he becomes king of Israel, the two the, the whole nation of Israel splits into two, and Jeroboam takes the northern tribes, he becomes king of the, the northern part of Israel, and the first thing he does, he's worried. That the Israelites would head down to Jerusalem, into Judah, to the southern kingdom, to worship God. And so he sets up two calves, One in Bethel and one in Dan, the opposite ends of Israel. And does he say, here is Ashroth, here is Molech? False gods, not at all. You can read about it in 1 Kings 12, 26 to 33, but in verse 28 of that he tells them... Here are your gods which brought you out of the land of Egypt. He's speaking about Yahweh, the deliverer God, the one who brought them out of Egypt. Now, this is the the very thing that God is saying, do not do. This is the most immediate application of this passage. Israel was being forbidden from worshipping God in the way that all the other nations did it. And he gives a reason for this command. He doesn't do that in all of the Ten Commandments. Only four of the Ten Commandments have reasons or warnings. But if you look at verse 5 and 6, the second commandment does have a reason. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, he says in verse 5. For, for is a reason word. This is why you shouldn't worship them. I, the Lord your God, Am a jealous God. God is a jealous God. Have you ever thought about that? In fact, God not doesn't just say I'm a jealous God. Elsewhere He says, Jealous is my name. It's a defining characteristic of God. And when the Israelites make statues that worship that they worship as if they were the true God. They they agitate his jealousy. They do something to him that causes his jealousy to pour forth in judgment. Why would that be? Well, I think you get a clue in Isaiah forty two, verse eight, which we read at the beginning of the service. There God says that he will not give his praise to carved images. God is a God who will be glorified and he will be praised and when you make a carved image of God, you reduce his glory. You constrain him. You make him less than what he is. He is jealous of his glory and he will not have us misrepresented. He will not have us reduce it in any way. Imagine it this way. Imagine a a husband pouring out affection toward his wife. But instead of pouring it out to the person of his wife, he directs all of his affection towards a picture of her that he has in his wallet, let's say. And he directs all of his affection towards this picture of his wife. Now, a picture of his wife might remind him of her when he's apart, but what purpose does a picture have when his wife is in the same room? Can you imagine sitting sitting there and his wife's sitting next to him and he's just gazing with joy at this picture? How would the wife feel? Surely she would be jealous for his affection. Surely she'd be jealous for the attention. Surely she'd be jealous for his love. And surely that would rob her, that action would rob her of the fullness of his love. Because what's going to happen as he gazes at this image that he's got in his wallet? Is he interacting with the real wife that he has? Is he engaging with her and loving her as she really is? Not at all. That's not what images do. Images don't Contain the fullness of a person. They're surface level and we import things onto them. So what he's going to end up doing over time if he continues doing this is he's going to be loving a wife that doesn't exist. He'll imagine her in some way that she isn't. And then when he comes to find the actual wife that he has and engage with her as the person that she really is he probably won't even recognise her. This is the idea behind the idolatry that is forbidden in the second part. When we substitute an image for God, when the Israelites put a a golden calf and direct their affection and their worship and their attention and their love towards this object, even if they are seeking to do it to the God that's sort of behind it, they are robbing him of his glory and his love. Because... By nature of what they're doing, they're reducing him. They're worshipping something false about him. They're robbing him of his glory. Now, one preacher has pointed out that there is a linguistic link between the word image and the word imagination. We imagine something when we produce an image of it in our minds, don't we? That's, that's what imagination is. If I imagine a... Another country, I have to produce a picture of that country in my mind. This has implications for the second commandment as well. In fact, Paul points this very link out in Acts 17 verse 29, where he talks about idolatry. He's speaking to the Athenians and and looking at their various idols. And he says, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. And that word they're devising in other translations is translated imagination. We ought not to think that the divine nature is something that is produced in the imagination of man. Have you ever heard someone say something like this? I like to imagine God like a... Or, I like to think of God as... Or perhaps we aren't as sort of crass and obvious as that. Maybe we come at things more sophisticated. Perhaps, and I I think of this in my own situations, and I think it's common in sort of more theological circles. Perhaps we grow in our knowledge of theology to a point that we think we've got God sorted out. We've read enough and we've thought enough about God that we've produced a mental image of Him in our mind that's complete and sorted and done. We've got Him sorted. We know all that there is to know about God. We're no longer amazed by Him. We're no longer surprised by Him. We're no longer in awe of Him. We come to church and we're bored because we're just... We know what's going to be said because we know we've heard it all before. It's all the same thing. We've boxed God into a nice little, perhaps even a nice little reformed idol in our minds. This, I think, is an offence to God. This, I think, is a breaking of the second commandment. It's robbing God of glory because God is bigger than you can imagine. Quite literally. Literally. Our imaginations are not expansive enough to capture the fullness of God. We sung about this very thing. The psalmist says it too. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is what? Unsearchable. If you think you've searched it out, you haven't. There's more. It's deeper than you know. Unsearchable means beyond our understanding. Our minds are not wise enough to completely grasp all of God's attributes and hold them, and this is important too, and hold them in perfect balance and unity. God can be known, certainly. We can know true things about God, absolutely. But we will always fall short of knowing God completely. He is incomprehensible. This is part of the reason why God forbids us to make images to worship. He cannot be constrained. This is why we break the second commandment whenever we think that we have God figured out, or whenever we distort God even by emphasizing one attribute to the exclusion of others. Whenever we present an unbalanced view of God. When we say, Oh, God's all love, and we forget about his wrath and his anger. When we say, Oh, God's all love, and we forget about his justice. You see, this is what the ten, uh, this second commandment is pointing us to. It's pointing us to the fact that God has to reveal himself to us and God gets to define how we think about him. And he's given us the whole of the Bible for that purpose. Every single time we come to the word of God, we should be expecting to meet a God who is bigger than we can imagine. We should be asking God to form a right view of Him in our minds, to correct our imbalances, our lack of understanding, the smallness in our knowledge of Him. Our view of God should be so high in one sense that it cannot be captured. We should be constantly shocked and stunned and in awe of God who reveals Himself in the Scriptures. We should always be looking to God's self-revelation to find our understanding of God, not our own conception of him. These scriptures are so deep, his revelation of himself is so deep that it is unsearchable. You will never reach the bottom of it. But there's another implication of the second commandment. You see, the second commandment also has implications not just of how we think about God with our minds, but it has implications about how we approach God. Not only must we conceive of God correctly as he, has commanded, as he has revealed himself, but we must also approach him as he has commanded us to. You see this link in the story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 to 3. They were two priests, the sons of Aaron, who came to worship God, the correct God, without images, but in the wrong way. They came to worship God in a way that was not commanded by God, in verse 1 of Leviticus 10. The problem with this, and this is where you see the connection between the second commandment and Nadab and Abihu, the problem with this is that it robbed God of glory. This is precisely the problem that is being addressed by the second commandment. God is a jealous God. And so when Nadab and Abihu worship him with strange fire, fire he had not commanded, and they dare to come into his presence in a way that was not authorized by him, this is what he says. He strikes them down, dead, and he says, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people I must be glorified. The implication being that when Nadab and Abihu did whatever they wanted to walk into the presence of God. He was not being treated as holy. And he was not being glorified amongst the people. They were reducing him. They were reducing his glory and his holiness, Through that action. The second commandment requires us to come and worship God in the right way as he has commanded us to do, because to do otherwise makes him out to be less holy, less distinct from us, less perfect, less pure. Makes us it looks at like it's us saying that we can just waltz in and do whatever we want. It reduces the glory that we are giving him, just like approaching a king or a queen. We to we defer to them, don't we? We don't set the terms of engagement with a king. He does. He determines how we are to engage with him and we do as he says. Or else we are kicked out of his presence. This is the reason why as as a church here, we always want to be seeking to adjust our worship and align it more and more with the word of God. Because he sets the rules of engagement. We might want to worship God with our dancing. He says, No, come and worship me in song. We might like to come to God with our own efforts in our hands, with our own work, saying, God, I'm coming this week, I've done these things. He says, No, 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 you come to me with nothing in your hands. You come to me only claiming the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will do. We might want to. Come to corporate worship with a focus on the look and the feel of our service so that it's friendly to those who come in from outside. It's called seeker-sensitive worship. God says, no, I don't want you to be sensitive to the seeker. I want you to be sensitive to me. We are coming as we come to worship into the presence of a holy and glorious God. And the second commandment shows us that we must do so with fear and trembling in the way that he is commanded us to do it. But there's even more. It gets worse. The second commandment doesn't forbid all images of God. Yeah, what are you talking about there? Well, it forbids us from making images of God. But it doesn't forbid God from making images of God. And that's exactly what we see him do, isn't it? In Genesis chapter 1, he creates man, and how does he create him? He creates him in the image of God. What, what does that mean? What, what is man meant to be doing as the image of God? Well, he's not meant to get worshipped, that's true. But he is meant to accurately reflect the glory of God. That's what we're here for. That's, that's what idols are sort of doing. No, no pagan in the ancient world thought that idols were actually where God lived. They knew that the gods didn't live in the statues, but the statues were a representative of that idol, of that false god. That's what we're meant to be. We're meant to be a representative of God, displaying His glory to the world. And so if the second commandment is about God getting all the glory that He deserves and and being shown in the fullness of the riches of His grace and His love and His mercy and His wisdom and His truth and His goodness and His Wrath and his anger towards sin. Then what happens when we are bad images? When we disobey him? When we do not reflect his glory? Well, I, I think we're breaking the second commandment. And yes, that means that every single time we sin, we are robbing God of His glory, because we are not accurately reflecting Him, and we are breaking this commandment. But it's even worse than that, because every time we act in a way that exhibits a false understanding of God, we are breaking this commandment. When I do something in secret, thinking that I'll get away with it, I'm acting out of a belief Maybe an unconscious belief, a belief I wouldn't tell you I believe, but I'm acting out of a belief that God doesn't see everything. And God doesn't judge things done in secret. That's a false view of God. That's a—that's an idol of God that I've produced in my mind, a, a false image. If I believe that God has forsaken me, that, that me as someone who is loved by Jesus Christ can be left on the side of the road and completely abandoned by God, well... I'm believing a false view of God. I've set up a false image of Him in my mind and I'm acting out of a belief in that. If I don't believe that God will forgive me because I'm too sinful and He couldn't possibly accept me, even though He explicitly says that He is a loving God who abounds in steadfast love, who forgives wretched sinners who come to Him when they place all of their hope in Him, I'm saying, God, you're not like you say you are. You're something else. You're an image that I'm creating of you. I'm acting out of that image. I'm breaking the second commandment. So at this stage, you should be... If you're anything like me, I'm just... We do I'm totally. But it gets worse. Because look at what God says in verse 5 and 6. This doesn't just have implications for me and my relationship with God. This sort of sin has implications for my children as well. God says, I, the Lord, am your God. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You see, the way that you think of God, the way that you worship God, has consequences. And I think that these consequences, certainly they're a judgment from God, but they're baked in. They're they're a natural consequence of the way this world works. You see that again. Look at Jeroboam. He sets up false idols to worship the true God. And then every king after him, along his line, what does the Bible say about them? They walked in the way of their fathers, committing abominations, worshipping idols, false gods. His children walked in his sins. Over time, false worship of God, if you have a a small distortion that leans you in one particular way, your children, do you think they're going to be better or worse, humanly speaking? They'll be worse. They'll take on your error and they'll add to it. You're teaching them that it doesn't matter how you think about God. You're teaching them that it doesn't matter how you approach God. And they will take that on board, and they will double the effort. We see this again. Just look at our recent history. You have the Western world is a vastly Christian nation. Large numbers of people going to church. You have one generation who adopts a nominal Christianity. They're going to adopt the name of Christ, but nothing else. That's a false view of God. That's approaching God in their terms, not on His. They're saying, "Well, I can be a Christian." by doing whatever I want, and God says, no, that's not how you approach me. What happens to their children? What happens to their children? Lightwork. Complete abandonment of all concepts of God. But in the reverse, if you are someone who has been saved and who has been reformed in your understanding, your view of God, If you're seeking to align your life with the Scriptures, if you're seeking to worship God as a holy God, a a glorious God above all that we could ask or think, if you're teaching your children these truths, that the God of the Bible is amazing and and wondrous and I'm constantly learning of Him through the Word and I want to approach Him in holiness and reverence, what do your children do? Well, by God's grace, if He works by the Spirit which He is often desirous and willing to do, your children take that on and learn and love the Word of God as well. And they build on what you've done. They look at you and you go, they go, what are you doing? You're crazy. Why are you so sinful? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? And you should look at that and go, yes, wonderful. The Lord is gracious and merciful and He is loving to a thousand generations to those who love Him and keep His commandments. Now, there was a little bit of hope there at the end. I shouldn't have given it that yet. I wanted you to be right in despair. I gave it too early. Now I want to give you the hope. Okay? We, all of us, have broken the second commandment. and we've done it really badly. But look at Jesus Christ. Because when we talk about images of God, that should immediately be where your mind goes as well. What is Jesus Christ? He is the image of the invisible God, is He not? He is the perfect... Adam, he is the perfect human who worshipped God aright. And so you see Jesus worshipping the true God perfectly through his life. He never had any misconceptions about God. He always thought of God as his most glorious and most holy. He never had any distortions about him. He approached God all through his life as his loving and gracious Father. Perfect in justice and holiness and goodness and truth and all of his attributes. And he learns about Him from His Word. You can see that in the Scriptures. You see the the boy Jesus and the man Jesus going back to His Word, even as we heard this morning. Living based on this Word. Loving God based on His Word in His humanity. And so, He fulfills the Ten Commandments as the Second Commandment for us. He loves God where you cannot. He honours God as glorious as God is where you cannot. He even reflects the very perfect image of God in his humanity where you cannot. You see, he perfectly reveals God to us. There's this wonderful enmeshment of his day in his humanity there, where in John 1 you hear him say um, that. Oh, I didn't have my the notes there. That, if you, that he reveals the Father to us. No one has seen God at any time. The only Son, the only begotten of the Father, he has revealed him to us. When he takes on flesh, You see him in John 14, say a very similar thing. If you've seen me, he says, you have seen the Father. Why? Because he is the perfect image of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, as you see in Colossians 1, 15. He is the perfect image that we were meant to be. But even Jesus, you know, you might be going, oh, Jesus is the perfect image, Jesus was a man, so maybe we can have pictures of Jesus that we look to. I think that again, we, this is where we need to think through the second commandment, think through those principles we've just been through and consider what it means. The, the topic of images of Jesus is a big one. I'm not going to spend lots of time on it. It's caused much debate and discussion over the years and there's a strong reform position that states that all images of Jesus are forbidden by the second commandment. I don't think I would go that far, but what I would say is that we can begin with some basics, which is that it's clearly forbidden to worship an image of Jesus. For one, it's clear that from the the second commandment, it's to direct our veneration or our praise towards an image, a representation of God who is already directly accessible to us will bring that jealousy, that reducing of glory. Just like the husband with his wife. But you also need to think that how does the scripture speak about Jesus? How is he presented to us? Well, the only physical description we have of Jesus is that he has no form or comeliness when we see him, and there's no beauty that we would desire him. He's not anything special to look at. He's just a normal human being. But we are told that we can see Jesus. But how? Through the word. Through the preached Word of God, through the red Word of God. 2 Corinthians 4.6 is an example of that. Paul speaks of how God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Did this revelation of the glory of God in Jesus come about through Paul carrying around a picture of Jesus and showing him to people? Not at all. Just a few verses back, we see how the face of Jesus Christ was displayed in the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ Who is the image of God which comes through not preaching ourselves but preaching Christ Jesus, our Lord. We see Jesus through the Word of God, through the Gospel preached. So if you're going to have images of Jesus, I think they should be as non-interpretive as possible. They should be generic. They should not be something we venerate. They should not be something we seek to infuse with interpretation. This is our interpretation of Jesus Christ. This is where we find him beautifully displayed. This is a very relevant issue today. I would be remiss to not mention The Chosen, a very prevalent TV show. I think it's very dangerous because you, you're watching a highly interpretive presentation of a particular Jesus. And The Chosen is not where we learn what Jesus was like. The thing about images, I, I struggle with this because it, what it actually, what this, the implication of all of this is that whenever you talk about God, whenever you write something about Jesus, you, you better be careful. But the thing about images is, images don't—they—they they are subtle. They grab our hearts at times without us knowing. His words don't seem to do that in exactly the same way. But the good news about Jesus goes further than all of this as well. It goes further than the fact that he kept us all perfectly on our behalf. Because when we trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, when we approach God as he's told us to through Jesus Christ and through him alone, we can approach God boldly, not in fear, thinking that we're going to break this commandment all the time which we will do but we can approach him boldly because even our faulty sinful weak worship and understanding of God is accepted through the work of Jesus Christ because when God looks at us coming in humbly seeking to honour him and praise him through Jesus Christ he does not see our works he sees the perfect work of Jesus Christ and he accepts our work as if it was that good Not only that, but the Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus. And we are told that he is tasked with teaching our hearts the truth. As we read about God, as he is revealed to us in his word, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and gives clarity to our minds and draws our hearts to know and love God as he truly is. God is seeking people to worship Him in spirit and in truth, that is, as He is truly, without false images and imaginations of who He is, and He has sent the Holy Spirit to train us in that worship. We should be praying that every time we come to scriptures, and every time that we come to a Bible study, and every time we come to church, we would see God more clearly. That his glory would become larger and larger in our minds. That our misconceptions about God would be corrected. That our imbalances would be adjusted. That our jaws would drop. That we would never be bored. And that we would be constantly made more like Christ. Until the day when we'll be freed from our sin and weakness. And we will see Jesus Christ, the very image of God. And we will know God perfectly. I would argue still not completely, but perfectly. In all his glorious radiance of holiness and goodness and justice and truth and beauty and glory. Let's pray. Lord God, what a holy and awesome God you are. Lord, we cannot come before you uh, by ourselves. We are so full of sin and weakness. And Lord, we inevitably uh, come to you in a way that is false false. And simple, and yet how wonderful it is, Lord, that we can come in boldness, knowing that our righteousness is not found in ourselves, but is found in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would work in us by your Spirit, to make you bigger and bigger in our lives, to conform us to the image of Christ, that so we might see you as you really are, and that we might worship you Lord We pray this in Jesus' name.